Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikel Rogers-Wood. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, a retired dean of general studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. You may notice a difference in the audio quality of Malu's interview. That's because it was recorded outside during a week in March 2022 when I went out to Texas to be with Malu during her cancer treatment. It was one of the rare moments that week that she got to be outside enjoying the slightly warmer weather. So I wanted her to have that opportunity even while she was good enough to give us the time for the podcast. When we left off at the end of our last episode, we were talking to Malu. She was living in Hawaii, had been feeling ill for months, and was trying to figure out what the heck was going on. This isn't okay, I need to go see an ENT. Mm-hmm. And so he thought that, like I went in to see him in October, and he thought that I had polyps in my nose, and so he referred me to an ENT. But again, I live in an island, and so most, the earliest appointments were like, this was October, the beginning, we're in like March. And some of them were even as far as May because oh we didn't gosh. have enough ENTs. And because I, and I considered flying to the mainland and doing, you know, a referral in one of those states, but I had constant sinus infections, which meant that my, my ears were always hurting. My head was always sore. And so it just didn't seem like a good option. Um, I got lucky and uh, ENT had a cancellation in December. And so I waited to December, but I, I got consistently worse. Um, when I saw the ENT before Christmas, she was really frustrated that I hadn't just been sent to a hospital or ER because I was so congested. So she put me on some heavier medicine to take care of my infection because she couldn't even send me for a CAT scan yet because I was so infected. And so over the holidays, I basically got worse. Like the medicine helped in some ways, but then it started some major nosebleeds and, Mm. and stuff. But then again, we were in the Omnicom surge. I just seemed to hit it in all those COVID surges. And so finally, in the beginning of January, when two different medicine treatments didn't work, and I was still having massive nosebleeds and just on the verge of her just sending me to a hospital, she's like, let me just send you in for a CAT scan. And so she sent me in for a CAT scan, and I went in to talk to her, and she opened the CAT scan and was like, oh, hold on a minute and my 15 minute appointment to do an outpatient surgery for polyps became like an hour and 15 minutes while she talked to the tech the you know the technicians and tried to figure out because she the cat scan didn't show a tumor yet because i was so congested but it did show a hole in the wall between my sinuses and my brain and Mm. so she figured out that my leaking nose was actually um a CSF leak, cerebral spinal fluid leak. And then she sent me immediately to get an MRI. And the MRI, like, I, they, they fit me in. And literally, like, I, I had the MRI at, like, 3.30, and I was finished at 4.30. And my, we drove home, and I had been home for less than an hour when she called me at home that night said, you have a tumor. 
you need to come in tomorrow and we'll discuss it in more detail. She goes, but I'm trying to find you a neurosurgeon right now. And then again, I live on an island and COVID's affected all of us. And so we just have a lot less specialists, I would say, in some areas on the island. And so she was really hard pressed to find a neurosurgeon because most of the neurosurgeons she had worked with before had already retired. And uh, with the pictures from the MRI, it was obvious that I had a pretty serious issue, but it was a rare one. And so she was trying to find a neurosurgeon who would take my case. We got very lucky and she found the head of the head and neck cancer in Hawaii. He took my case and brought me in pretty immediately for a biopsy. But as Nikel said, it took a very long time to diagnose me. Two, yeah. Go, go ahead. Because I remember yeah. the pneumonia mm-hmm. and you being like, I thought I was going to die. Yes. And then I remember in December, you were like, I'm still feeling sick. Yeah. And then I remember for a solid month and a half, we talked most days, I would say two or three times a week. And it was like every time I talked to you, there was a new test and it wasn't good. Yeah. It was pretty depressing, I'll be honest. It's, it's a process because it's like they don't, yeah. they don't tell you, okay, this is what you have. There's a whole lot that oh, goes yeah. into it. It was like literally I thought I was going to have an outpatient surgery, and then I got my CAT scan results on a Wednesday, and it's like, oh, you have a hole in your head. And so I, you know, was like, oh, my God. And, you know, like then I you know, recouped and, like, was like, okay. So what are we going to do about it? And then Thursday, so I should also mention that I also am in a high-risk program for breast cancer. And so once a year, I get a breast MRI, and then six months later, I get my mammogram just to make sure I'm not getting breast cancer. And so the day that I had my MRI for my head, I also had an MRI for my breast for breast cancer. And so on that Friday, so Thursday, I found out that I have a tumor. Friday, I found out that I have an incredibly complex tumor that was going into my brain and I also got a call from my breast doctor saying I had an abnormal MRI so I needed to come in for further testing for that and at this point all I can think of is the hits just keep on coming so then the following week so that was a Friday Monday was a holiday Tuesday I had more breast tests and then Wednesday um, my doctor in Hawaii he's in surgery every day except Wednesday and so I was one of his first appointments in Wednesday and so Wednesday I had the biopsy which I thought they told me when they talked to me on Friday that it's very that I should pack a bag because I may be put immediately into the hospital he did not put me immediately in the hospital but he did put me on like a bed rest and confined me from like doing other things because I had a tumor in my nose and I was very and I had a CSF leak which made me very open to bacterial meningitis Mm -hmm. on top of like complications of if it was cancer. But the cancer was like, to be honest with you, I knew I had cancer. You know, you just have that gut feeling sometimes, but the statistics were against it because the tumor I had only 5% of tumors in your nose and sinus areas turn out to be cancer. So it's a very small percentage when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And 95% are just tumors that need to be removed, you know? 
But I knew that no matter what, even if it wasn't cancer, it was in my brain. Yeah. So I needed a neurosurgeon and I needed a good team because it was going to be a bigger surgery because it had been sitting there for so long, you know. And he wanted to put me into chemo immediately, but he needed to know what type of cancer it was. And that's one of the things that Nikhil and I had talked about that I did not know mm-hmm. before, which is that I guess I had just always assumed chemo, you know, you have drugs and I know you have certain drugs for it but like all head and neck cancers would be the same so like he you know he's like hey you have a tumor in your nose if it's cancer we'll just put you into chemo right but that is not so and that even if you had a recurrent like had breast cancer like we were thinking oh Oh, okay one shot yeah chemo that'll kill everything and he's like no, if it turns out to be breast cancer, he's like, the number one worry is your brain. The number two worry is this head and neck cancer you have. And the number three would be the breast cancer. So you would have to be treated for that six months later. And so um, I found out it was cancer approximately a week after my biopsy. I had a call with him and he told me that it was cancer, but they did not know what cancer it was. And so I guess they got, so I found out like the following Tuesday and they got the results back in the lab on Friday and they immediately sent it to the top rare nose cancer, you know, area, head and neck cancer area, which happened to be in Texas, in Dallas, in that lab to find out what was happening. So the doctor talked to me on Tuesday and told me that it was cancer. He did not know what cancer it was yet. He hoped to find out by Friday. And he said that I needed to start chemo immediately because whatever I had was aggressive and it had spread. That He said it started in the nose and it's already spread up to your brain. Mm. And so he set up appointments for me that week with my team in Hawaii. So he found a neurosurgeon and an oncologist and a radiation oncologist. And so what's going through your head in this moment? Because you, in two weeks... You've gone from, I've got some nasty recurring sinus infections, to there's a hole, to there's a tumor, to, oh my gosh, it's, cancer. it's a cancer that has started to spread. Like, what are you thinking and feeling in that moment? You know, it was really overwhelming. Like, it was obviously very overwhelming. And I, you know, every time I got a diagnosis, I would cry, mm-hmm. give myself the grace to fall apart for a minute, then I'd put myself back together and be like, okay, what's the next step? I want to stop here for just a second to ask you to put a mental bookmark here at the place where we first heard Malu talk about her particular stance on fighting the cancer and moving forward, because we'll come back to this. So I was in a place where I guess I would say I was ready for battle. I wasn't happy to be ready for battle, but I just kind of felt like I was getting to that place. So when he told me that I had cancer, I didn't fall apart. I said, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And he's like, well, you know, we have to figure out what cancer it is first, blah, blah, blah. And he told me, I know you're going to want to get a second opinion. He goes, but I need to tell you straight out, the cancer that you have is incredibly rare and you cannot go to another hospital other than MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. He goes, I know you're going to want to go somewhere where you have family or friends nearby. He goes, but you have to go here. And I said, okay, make me an appointment. And he, and he was very surprised by that. And he's like, well, you do understand that it's very possible and probably more probable that if you go there, 
it's not going to be a few weeks. You're going to be there for like possibly six months or more. And I said, I'll figure it out. Get me the appointment. And he's like, are you sure? And I said, yes, I'm sure. Get me the appointment. And he's like, well, we don't even know what cancer you have yet. I said, yeah, but I don't want to wait in a line to get an appointment with these doctors. So get me the appointment. He's like, okay, I'll do what I can do. So last episode, you heard mom and I talk about getting a second opinion and some of the challenges that sometimes come up when it is time to get a second opinion. Mahler's experience isn't totally unusual in terms of a physician being somewhat surprised at a patient's outlook or attitude toward getting a second opinion that might involve certain obstacles. Sometimes some doctors make the misguided, the misguided judgment of simply looking at someone in in their office and assuming that they can't pay for certain tests. Uh And that happens mostly to people of color. They can't pay for a certain test and therefore, or they can't pay for a certain procedure. I remember um, when I was in Louisiana, as a matter of fact, I had gone to uh, a dentist who basically looked at me and um, she told me, your teeth? I'll just yank them all. I'll just pull them all out and give you some but it basically false teeth. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I don't think so. So I needed braces. But in fact, she just made the assumption that, okay, she can't afford all of these things because, you know, getting braces is an expensive proposition. And she just said, oh, just take them out. That's it. Yeah. And again, it's, it's the whole notion that some doctors make that they prejudge. They look at you and they say, no, you can't afford this. I can give you this kind of treatment when that may not necessarily be what, what is good for you at that time. Yeah, so. it's interesting because part of the conversations that I've had with Malu, um, she has made sure to say aloud, do not assume that I wouldn't want to pursue mm-hmm. a certain kind of treatment. Do not assume mm-hmm that it costs too much or it's too difficult. I want to hear about any and all possibilities. And if I decide to move forward with a possibility, then, you know, I I will do whatever it is I have to do to figure out how to make it work. She has made it a point to say that out loud to everyone on her treatment team. And, you know, I admire that about her. She was simply saying, okay, give me the options and let me choose. You yeah. don't choose an option for me. Not many yeah. people are that proactive to say, okay, I need to know, okay, this is my situation. What are the options? What is the advantage or disadvantage of each option? And then let me choose. Cost should not be a factor. We'll deal with the cost afterwards. Well, it's not even just cost because there's, you know, how difficult is it? Um, how long does it take? Like there's all of these other things that go into the permutation of would somebody offer you that type of treatment or not? But on the one hand, I understand that you know physicians are charged with so much in terms of making um, medical decisions and saying, this is my recommendation. At the same time, they are not the individual. And that individual might say, 
okay, this very difficult treatment might only give me six additional months, but I want those six additional months. So I'm going to do it. Or they might decide they want, you know, the life expectancy that they have now and so that they can continue climbing mountains or something. But only that person can say for sure. Back to Malu. Because there's no way, like, I fought so hard to have my kids. There was no way that I was going down without a fight to see them grow up, you know? And I knew that, like, I had fallen apart. Nikhil knows. I called her bawling when I found out I had a hole in my head. But I knew that I couldn't just fall into depression. Going down without a fight was not an option for me. So I met the other doctors, and um, it was really dire, to be honest with you. They still didn't know what kind of cancer it was, but the fact that this nose cancer was affecting my brain and it was wrapped around my carotid artery was incredibly dangerous. And the CSF leak, the hole in my head, the neurosurgeon that I talked to recommended that I went to MD Anderson as well. You know, he had seen the more common of the rare cancers in and over his like, I don't know, I, I would say 30 year career, he had had four cases but they're incredibly rare, you know? And um, it didn't look like I had the more common, which it turned out I did not have, the more common of the 5% of cancer from the head and neck. And the oncologist was really concerned about my CSF leak. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, we can absolutely do chemo here. He goes, but it's very possible that I'm going to want you to do chemo inpatient because you're at such a high risk for bacterial meningitis. And this is when you were still in Hawaii. And I was still in Hawaii here. And, um, and he said that he would want an infectious disease doctor to be following me. He would want me to be like totally locked down. Whereas now I was like not seeing visitors. My family was locked down. He wanted it even more so to prevent me from getting bacterial meningitis because he was really worried about that. And then my radiation oncologist, he was very honest with me, which I appreciate. All of them were honest with me, but he told me that when it came to radiation, you know, depending on what they determined was the right thing to do, and if the cancer didn't take away, because it was also wrapped around my left eye, Mm -hmm. it was very possible that I could go blind in my left eye. You know, I could have sufficient, a lot of like challenges moving forward. And he ended the appointment asking me, you do have like um, living will set up to take care of your children, right? And all of them, like all of them, I basically felt like were giving me a probable death sentence. And so every time I saw them, it was like, I mean, they, they were telling every, me everything that was wrong with me. And it just one of those things would be terrifying. And I had sure. so many of those things and it was just a lot. And then meanwhile, the subplot is that my test came out more and I had to get a biopsy on a tumor in my breast during the same time. But, but the priority obviously was for the head, neck and brain cancer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was hot. I, I will say that the doctors in Hawaii were great with communicating with me, um, giving me a lot of support and they were great in being honest about what was treatable where I was, you know? And, um, I went and got my PET scan and, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I told Nick this, you know, you're bad when you go in to get like check in for your pet or your MRI and you have like an annoyed 
administrative person there who's like, I didn't call you yet. Stand at the line. You know, you know when they get a little snappy yeah. and so forth, right? And then when she pulled up my file and she goes, oh, you're Malu. Why don't you sit down and I'll finish your registration and then I'll bring you a bracelet. Go ahead, sweetie. So it was like, and I was like, crap, that's not a good thing. She should be being mean to me right now. That's how she is with everybody else. (laughs) Now I know I'm really sick. (laughs) It was hard, but it, you know, on on one end I was blessed because I did have time to deal with it and I had the support through my parents and my siblings to take care of my kids while I like got things in order because I was getting weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker every day so it was very challenging it was also like I had like my parents and my brothers would take me to the ocean every now and then to sit in places that there were nobody else there just to again you know deal with what I was going through what might come out of it because I knew that I was if I, I got an appointment at MD Anderson I was getting ready to fly to Texas and I knew the flight would be really difficult and I also knew that it was very possible that they would tell me I'm terminal and I couldn't be treated and so it was the first time in my life like I never thought in my life that I would be getting on a plane praying that a doctor would be like okay we're gonna do brain surgery I mean who wants brain surgery yeah. right I yeah. wanted brain surgery I mean, I don't want brain surgery. It still terrifies the living, but I want brain surgery if it means I'm going to see my kids, you know, graduate, get married and have kids. And so it was just an interesting place to be at where my life just totally turned upside down. And um, when I got to Texas, I had one appointment with a neurosurgeon, no other appointments. And so my dad my brother came up with me and my best friend flew in i individually me knew that it was very unlikely that i would be returning from texas unless the cancer was beat i knew that they couldn't do it in hawaii i knew that if i was returning from texas it would mean that i'm terminal this was weeks later and i still didn't know exactly what kind of cancer i had and so um they had been batting two extremely rare cancers back and forth they couldn't decide which one and do it we're doing more tests and so i came up here with a carry-on bag and one appointment and as soon as i went in to see the one doctor he when he brought my file out that morning he reached out to other doctors and my you know one hour appointment turned into like six to seven hours there with a whole bunch of doctors and tests and then the next day I came back and met more doctors and tests and then the next day I had more scans and tests and so I was in the hospital every day that week and it was the best thing because everything like I had a team now who had seen everything like MD Anderson I believe the receptionist had told me when I had talked to her Look, I know you have a rare cancer, but everybody here has a rare cancer. <laughs> and you're can... like in the, you know, Hall of Fame of rare cancers as it turns out, which is yeah, scary, but I remember you telling me that enabled you to get really quick access because it was very serious. Yeah. It was it was like one of those good bad situations yeah. that I tried to flip where I had such a rare unreadable tumor 
that I was getting access to the best doctors, like literally in the world, because they're like, what is this? You know, and I get there and they, I already signed papers in my second day there. They asked if they could do a study on me, Wow. which of course I'm like, I want to help people. You know, I don't care if I don't get anything out of it. And then my fourth day there, so it was like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. On Friday, I found out I was like the tumor topic for um, that February conference that doctors have where they talk about it. And they and, and at that point still, I still didn't have a diagnosis. So my doctor's like, when I saw the brain surgeon, his very first thing he told me is, looking at your scans, you needed to be in chemo like a month ago or two wow. months ago. He goes, I need you to be in chemo as soon as possible. But they couldn't start me on chemo until they knew what was wrong with me. And and to me, that was the that was the part that I had no idea about when people were like, okay, I'm starting chemo. I thought chemo was like antibiotics. You can have penicillin, you can have amoxicillin, but they pretty much do the same thing. Um, and it wasn't until you told me like they want they want to start, but they didn't they bump it back by a week because they were still trying to figure out. Oh yeah, what is this? Which kind of medicine do we use? Yeah, they wanted me to start chemo at the end of that week, and then they bumped it to Monday, and then they bumped it to Wednesday because they still didn't know what cancer I had, and so they got the sample or my original doctor in Hawaii got the sample released from the place in Dallas and then there was all these other complications because you know how it is like there's so many hoops you have to legal hoops you have to jump through and since Hawaii's lab sent Dallas's lab this sample of me then it had to go back to Hawaii for Hawaii to send it to Houston but they didn't want to do that MD Anderson wanted the sample as like to start going through as soon as possible. They wanted it in their lab. Yeah. They almost did another biopsy, which I was like oh, really praying that they didn't do because it took me a week to recover from that biopsy. And I didn't see how I could do a biopsy, jump into chemo and just be in like massive pain and sickness all at once. So I don't know, by some act of God, MD Anderson got my sample on Friday and even their advanced lab wasn't able to come to a final determination until Tuesday afternoon, and I started chemo on Wednesday. While a long wait can be part of the diagnostic process for a lot of people, that's not the case for everyone. Malu, Amy, and Lauren had to play the waiting game. Sarah had a different experience. You're right. Like, I think I was just thinking about that this morning, actually, that, you know, for a lot of folks, it is this idea that, you know, you have some kind of scan, you find out there's something maybe questionable, and then you end up waiting for a period of like lots of anxiety, I would imagine. And that's kind of how I always pictured things happening in the head. But that's not at all what happened in my situation. Um, back in September of 2020, and I actually remember the exact day because it was my husband's birthday. And I just wasn't feeling great. Like, just you know, thought I might be coming down with a cold or a flu or something. And this is September, 2020. So, you know, there was also the like, eek, could this be COVID? But I knew I hadn't been, you know, intentionally, like I knew there wasn't anybody around me that had been exposed recently. So I really didn't think I had a reason to think COVID, but you know, I just wasn't feeling great. And September, back to what I do for a living, September is also Child Passenger Safety Awareness Month. September is always a really busy week at work. So I had a lot going on at work. I was doing tons of virtual conferences and events as a result of child passenger safety stuff going on. So 
it was busy. I had at that point an eight year old. So she was virtual schooling and, you know, schools had just started again. So she was hot and heavy into stuff. Uh, And then I had a two year old at the time. So things were just busy. And I figured, you know, probably I'm more just run down from life. And it was 2020. And who wasn't run down with life by September of 2020? Uh, So I just kind of, you know, it is what it is. I'm just not feeling great. And it went a couple of weeks and I still just wasn't feeling 100% myself. Um, But I had my annual physical coming up. And that's, you know, if nothing else from my story, please take away that annual physicals are super important and routine screenings are super important. So my doc like to always do your blood work a week before your annual. So that way you had your labs done. And by the time you sat in the office with him, you could be going over, you know, just those routine screenings that he did. So on a Monday morning, I went and had the labs drawn. And I remember the phlebotomist was really frustrated with me because she felt like I was dehydrated. She was having a really hard time. Like she got the needle stuck, you know, to do the labs, but she was having a a hard time getting the amount of blood that she needed and was lecturing me on drinking water. But this was like, Mm. like it's a fasting blood draw. It's seven o'clock in the morning. How much water could I possibly consume between the time I wake up at seven o'clock in the morning? So I was still just kind of ignoring that. And I had actually started feeling a little bit better that weekend. So I, I sort of thought I was maybe over the hump. So the next morning I was like, well, you know, my doc should have the labs. So maybe I have like a sinus infection. Like maybe it's something that'll show up in the blood work. So let me just schedule a teledoc visit with him to see what's going on. And maybe, you know, he knows something. If he can just give me an antibiotic or something before I see him next week, like why feel yucky still if there's something that he can do to help. So I called him. um, We had a teledoc appointment that afternoon and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon now. And he said, well, you were on my list to call today anyway, because your labs did return and they returned critically abnormal. Not ever words that you want to hear from somebody. Um, So he's asking me like, how are you feeling? And I'm talking about like mostly fatigue, just kind of run down. He said, do you have any weird bruises? Well, funny you say that I do have this giant bruise on my thigh that, you know, again, two pandemic puppies and a two-year-old, I didn't think anything about this weird bruise on my thigh. Cause I'm like, you know, yeah. who knows? Like the dog jumped on me, the kid jumped on me, somebody jumped on me, you know, my family bruises like a peach, no big deal. Next time on at the same time. So he said, well, don't panic, but I'd like you to go to the ER and you know, Oh, well, panic. Who panic when somebody says, I'd like you to go to the ER and yeah. I'd like you to go to the ER in September of 2020 when COVID is like all over the place. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to at the same time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.com dot fireside dot fm you can also send us an email our address is sametimepod at gmail.com thank you to our guests malu panohu amy artuzo sarah haberstick and lauren huffmaster episode written and produced by dr nikel rogers wood music by purpleplanet.com copyright 2022 by nikel rogers wood phd and Elsa Rogers, PhD.